Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Before we jump into today's sesh, quick reminder that this year, yours truly launched my first pod course, Think Like a Lawyer, available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. It's 15 episodes, under 15 minutes each, designed to help everyone better understand the legal world in which we all live and provide some actual practical information relevant to major life events where you think to yourself, hmm, should I be calling a lawyer? So if you're interested in some bite-sized lawyer audio nuggets, check it out by visiting Himalaya.com lawyer. Use promo code lawyer, all caps, for your first 14 days free. So back to tech on reg business. On today's episode, we are talking about payments, patents, and trolls. Many of us have heard the term patent troll, but fewer of us truly understand what that means. In a nutshell, patent trolls file 84% of the high-tech patent lawsuits every year. And over the past decade, there's been a 500% growth in patent troll lawsuits. Research from the Boston University School of Law has actually found that patent troll litigation results in $80 billion of lost wealth annually. That's a lot. Today, our guest is Michael Switzer, partner and chair of the intellectual property practice at Actuate Law. Mike formerly chaired the IP practice at another Amlaw 100 law firm and has been at this for over 25 years. Sorry to make you feel old, Mike. Um, Has worked in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office as an examiner and has also worked in-house for Hitachi Limited. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much, Dara. And unfortunately, it's actually over 30 years now I was recalculating. So yes, I am old. (laughs) So Mike, let's start with the basics. What is a patent troll? We have all heard this term used forever. Sure. So patent troll is is basically a pejorative term to describe uh, an entity that utilizes patents separate and apart from the underlying manufacturer. So what do I mean by that? They want to, as a business model, monetize patents by enforcing them through licensing or litigation. So like they don't do anything, they don't make anything, they don't provide any services. You hit it right right on the head. Um, basically, it would be a, a, the typical scenario is be an entity that has acquired patents uh, and that is their business model. They have no intention of any ever manufacturing a product, launching it, you know, getting on QVC, anything like that. Their business model, plain and simple, is to monetize the patents. But like the plaintiff's bar, they don't like being called trolls, right? No, because juries usually don't associate troll with something positive that you would want to hand a lot of money to. So they would prefer that we refer to them as uh, non-practicing entities or NPEs or patent assertion entities, PAEs, because those just sound a lot more clinical and are more likely to so be someone you'd hand money. Yes, yes, exactly. But, you know, NPE, PAE, 
uh, if it walks like a troll and talks like a troll, right, it's it's a troll. And the idea is that they're trying to make a buck uh, off of enforcing the rights and they acquired the rights to these patents with no intention of doing anything other than, you know, like shaking people down. In general, yes. Um, you know, there's been a lot of debate in the, you know, the IP industry of whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, whether it should be stopped or whether it's just a, you know, monetization of, of an asset, just like, you know, real estate or anything else. So any color on how this little cottage industry really got started? Sure. So let me step back a little bit just so that all of the listeners kind of have a, a baseline understanding of what patents are and what we're talking about. So in the U.S., patents actually are provided for under the U.S. Constitution. Um, Article 1, Section 8 says the Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So what does that mean? What I was going to ask you that question. Exactly. So <laughs> what it means is the deal is this. We as a society want people when they invent something new, uh, you know, a new medical device, something that, that is going to be useful. We want them to disclose so everyone else knows how to make and use that advancement so that instead of everyone working in parallel and all inventing the wheel, we can start with a wheel and then add on to it and keep moving forward. So to promote people to give that disclosure, to teach about their technology, a limited monopoly is granted. In other words, the owner of a patent is able to exclude others from making, using, or selling the invention that's been claimed. So you could stop, if I invent, for example, a new laser, I can stop other people from making, using, or selling that new laser. So obviously, that makes sense because, right, it's in the, it's in the vein of progress and uh, science and, you know, moving our society forward and, and creation of uh, knowledge and new things and new processes and, you know, things that make our society better. But that sort of, right, I think that sort of started changing and the, the, the monetization of the patent as an asset, as you described before, at some point changed, right? Like the purpose of that clause changed. When did that happen? Absolutely. So traditionally, when you think way, way back, what patents were generally used for is they were used as a business tool. In other words, I come up with a new way of, of you know, making uh, a shovel. The main way that I want to make money is I'm going to manufacture those shovels and I'm going to sell them. If I have a patent, I would use the patent in conjunction with that to stop other people from basically selling copies, doing that. So I'm protecting my market my share. That's exactly. Exactly. So I'm protecting my market share, my business using that patent more as kind of a shield, so to speak. But what ended up happening is in the late 80s, there were a variety of, uh, we'll call them campaigns, where entities started asserting their patents and getting significant revenue from them. One example is Texas Instruments. In the late 80s, its business was not doing very well. Um, in an effort to get additional revenue, Texas Instruments went on a licensing and litigation campaign 
And over the course of only three years, from 1987 to 1990, it's been reported that they got over $500 million of revenue from patent licensing and litigation, which was a huge percentage of their revenue, as opposed to the traditional, which was selling TI products and chips and things like that. So that you can kind of trace a direct line that all of a sudden there was a lot of interest in the significant amount of revenues that could be generated from patents. So that shield then became quite the sword. Absolutely. And so where are we today? Where we are today is there's individuals, there's very large investment funds that the business plan is to pool together some money and go out and acquire patent assets. They could be uh, from traditional operating entities, uh, you know, large companies like an IBM or a Google may have some patents they're not using. They want to monetize them. They'll sell them. It could be from individual inventors that created a patent and then will sell them off. Um, but as a result, there is significant activity, as you talked about on the top of the show, from entities, either individuals or, or you know, companies that are now going out and trying to license or litigate and get money from from patent i feel almost silly asking this question but like why should an organization care the bottom line is they want your money plain and simple they want to monetize their patent assets and the way they do that is they get people to either pay a license or pay damages from a litigation and so your audience financial services you know they're in a very interesting position because Financial services, you know, 50 years ago primarily meant what? Walking in with some paper and exchanging paper and having lots of paper move around. That's not the way it is now. It's very dirty. Exactly. Very, very dirty. I mean, it's a high tech industry. You've got security, big data, networking, cloud computing, encryption, mobile payments. It's this intersection of all these different high tech areas. So as a result, you've got all kinds of patents and you've got a lot of deep pocket targets. And as you just suggested, clearly a target-rich environment, particularly because there's so much technology being used in so many facets of the financial services industries and, um, and, you know, through either acquisition or partnership or licensing, the companies that are leveraging all of this great technology in order to provide better products and services to the public um, have now become targets. And we've actually seen the payment space become a recent target, right? Absolutely. The most uh, kind of recent example is there's an entity called Casella, C-A-S-E-L-A-S, L-L-C. It has filed 20 plus lawsuits in Texas, primarily the Western District of Texas, which is currently kind of a hotbed for this activity. Um, basically, the defendants are kind of a, a who's who in, in the financial services area. There's UBS Bank, NCR Corp, First Citizens Bank and Trust, a whole bunch of other uh, financial services institutions. Um, and basically, five patents are being asserted that are directed towards um, computer-implemented means of keeping and sending banking and transaction records. Um, so we've been keeping a close eye on it. The case has just started. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how, how those are approached and, and defended against. So, I mean, if you're sitting in a target-rich industry, like 
you're a tech entrepreneur, you're in financial services, you're in fintech, you're in reg tech. Uh, what do you do when you find yourself the target of one of these trolls? I won't, I, I'm just going to continue to use the word troll. Sorry, plaintiff spar. So I guess the first step is you should start before you're a target because the reality is you're already oh, such a, a lawyer. Oh, Mike, such a lawyer answer. Such a lawyer answer. The reality is if you have any liquidity, any asset value, you're already a target. I mean, just that's the bottom line. And so, particularly if you're out there trying to raise capital, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, the reality is you want to start with good hygiene. And what do I mean by that? Most entrepreneurs are getting a lot of technology, they're getting a lot of um, you know, hardware, software, et cetera, from third party vendors, maybe big tech, maybe small tech. And so, just starting right there, looking at your contracting process trying to get the best you can in terms of indemnifications, warranties, reps, so that if you are sued for something and it is a result of the you know, nice pack communications package that you got from Motorola or you know, something from Microsoft that you, know, you can turn to them and say, hey, this is as a result of your product, your service that I'm using. So that's one step. Next, check your insurance. Um, a lot of insurance have the option of IP riders, IP policies. That's something else that a small entrepreneur can, can look at and explore. So can we talk a little bit about um, insurance for a second? Because obviously, if it's, as, if it's as profitable an industry for patent trolls as it clearly is, how does that sort of, how does that balance with, uh, you know, insurers obviously there's we've seen over the course of years when insurers see that um there's uh very valuable claims that they're going to have to insure against you see premiums going through the roof you see companies dropping certain sorts of coverage how has that sort of evolved over time with the insurers because you know for especially for a small entrepreneur that's a difficult negotiation to have with an insurance company. Um, so, you know, how do we level that playing field? Well, first off, some existing um, policies may already have that in there. Otherwise, there is the opportunity to go for, you know, kind of specialized uh, services. Uh, my recommendation there usually is, is talk to a broker um, in terms of what options there are. Uh, unfortunately, of the many hats and many experiences I've had over 30 years, um, I, I have not had a, a, a significant amount of experience in selling uh, in selling IP insurance. I've I've fought with some of the companies <laughs> to try and get, but uh, I, I can't profess that I'm an expert on on insurance sales. So, best prophylactics are insurance and good contracting, right? That that's a good first step. Um, for some entities, what we do a lot of is we do what we refer to as freedom to operate. Um, that would be if you have something which is a new idea, a new concept, a new product to market, uh, we can kind of survey the area to see if there is um, you know, patents that have already been identified as problems. Sometimes it's as simple as you know, a minor modification to a design which could keep, get you out and into the free area. All right. So we've talked about like 
a few things that an organization can do to protect itself on the front end. And, you know, like the big companies are doing this already. They, they've got sophisticated legal departments. They sort of understand, you know, the game. And frankly, not that anyone can really afford to be, you know, a constant ATM for, you know, a, a patent troll who wants to sue you again and again, but they're better equipped to handle sort of these sorts of claims as opposed to smaller businesses, entrepreneurs, you know, companies in the middle of raising capital, an entrepreneur is really trying to uh, make it over that initial initial hump because one of these one of these suits could really be devastating for a small gr- and growing company, right? Absolutely, and that that is really what, as you would say, the patent trolls are are using to their advantage. Is uh, patent litigation is expensive. A kind of a, a number that you'll see thrown out a lot is that the cost of a what was referred to as kind of a small patent case uh, through trial could be in excess of $3 million. Um, and just to do some of the initial aspects of, you know, doing the initial investigation, filing an answer, doing some initial proceedings, you know, that could run into $50,000, $100,000. So, some of the cases that you will see, some of the matters that are, are brought by these NPEs are what we would refer to as, as nuisance value cases. What do I mean by that? I mean that they are forcing the business person to make a judgment of, do I want to spend $50,000 to just do a little bit of legal work or do I want to hand you know $10,000 quick and easy to this uh, NPE and get them to go away? Um, and that is kind of on the nuisance end of the scale. On the other end is, you know, unfortunately, there are some what we'd refer to as bet the company cases. I mean, Apple's been tagged for hundreds of millions of dollars by various NPEs. So, and you know, th- so, and there's nothing, you can't force a plaintiff to settle, right? You can't force them to settle um, if they're determined to take a case the distance. Um, although I think as you and I both know as practicing lawyers, there comes a point where everyone really has their price, right? And it's always a a risk versus reward uh, analysis that's done because you never know what a jury's going to do, especially if you get a lawyer up there that keeps calling them trolls. Um, so let's pretend that, uh, you know, I'm a small payments company and I'm going to be Casellas's next sort of victim target. They've, they've gotten all of the money they can out of the big guys. And as I sort of mentioned before, there's a lot more little guys than there are big guys, right? So once they've gotten what they can out of the big guys, they're still going to shake the tree, right? You know, usually that is the case. Um, you know, kind of start with the, the bigger pocketed, uh, you know, potential targets and, and keep moving forward because as long as they can perceive that they're going to get revenue, um, so, you know, what should kind of, you know, the ultimate question, what should the, the smaller entrepreneur do? Um, my recommendation is always try to get a patent attorney quickly who you feel comfortable can understand your business. Because at the end of the day, you've got to facilitate your business. And so that is a quick then analysis of what is this claim? What, you know, how does it relate to your business? Uh, is it a nuisance value case? In other words, the patent claim is not really that good, or is it more serious? And then as we talked about, do you have an insurance policy that can help you out? Do you have uh, indemnification that's going to help you out? And 
how can you inflict some pain on the patent troll? I was going to say, how does a little guy develop sort of like strategies to to make life not so easy, right? Like to to make the shakedown not an easy shakedown. So some of it is, um, you know, plain and simple to be able to have a negotiation of, you know, what your value is, what your business is. The smaller it is, then the smaller the dollar amount for, for the plaintiff. So that's something that um, early on uh, in some instances can be resolved because at the end of the day, they're business people too. Um, you know, they don't want to expend a lot of effort on a, on a small return. So um, I guess small businesses that doing, are doing capital raises should just be really aware of what's out there uh, on Crunchbase about them, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, trying to relocate cases, um, that is something, in other words, uh, most of the cases, for example, Caselis is filing in the Western District of Texas because that is perceived as being very advantageous to them. Why They're, is that? Uh, you know why that is? Well, traditionally, you know, smaller uh, areas like that have juries that have been, uh, for one reason or another, very uh, plaintiff friendly. Uh, the judges usually put in uh, procedures that make it very fast, so it's perceived as not beneficial to the defendant. Um, and so there's a lot of effort to try and get cases out of there. There's been some changes to the law recently, which helps defendants try to relocate cases to a more friendly, more convenient area. Um, that's, you know, one aspect. Another thing that is popular, depending upon the value of the case, is attacking the underlying patents. There are procedures at the patent office that are generally less expensive and can um, in some instances, stay or stop the patent litigation while you attack the patent at the patent office. So like no disrespect, like the Western District, District of Texas, but the, the perception by the patent troll uh, bar, uh, plaintiff's bar, is going to be that there's going to be a, a lower hurdle uh, to overcome in the Western District of Texas whether that's from the bench or the jury pool or from a process perspective, then in maybe some larger uh, district courts like in the Southern District of New York or in DC or in the DC courts or in the Northern District of Illinois or something like that, right? It's basically the perception that the, the speed, the procedures, the location make it more difficult for defendants, A absolutely. Even something as simple as, uh, you know, the perception of where you're from. So, for example, if you're a Chicago company and you can move the case to Chicago, it is more likely that the jury hearing that you are a local company, um, you know, the perception is that that would be useful and helpful to a defendant, as opposed to if you are a Chicago-based uh, you know, finance payment company and you're being sued in the Western District of Texas, you have no connection um, yeah. to that so I jury think, base. I think what's probably important for listeners to understand, especially if you're, you know, in the space and an entrepreneur, is that while this type of patent litigation is obviously highly technical, highly specific, and its own sort of cottage industry, not to sort of forget all of this I would say more traditional litigation strategies that litigators have been employing for many years across industries, regardless of the nature of the lawsuit, in order to best 
position yourself for for success. So you take you take sort of the tech and the patent stuff out of it. Um, you don't just need a good patent lawyer if you're going to fight a little bit. You really do need a good litigator. Absolutely, and uh, you know, in most of our cases, uh, that's one of the things we look for right up front is to to work with someone such as yourself who. You know, has oh, don't I'm I'm not a patent litigator, Mike. That's that's super that's super kind of you, but but you um, are a superlative litigator who can then take the patent tech and look at it and go, okay, you know that sounds like a reasonable argument to a jury and a judge who, in almost all instances, don't have the tech background, don't have the IP background. Yeah, there is there is a fair degree of a. Uh tech to English translation that I would say needs to be done, uh, you know, anytime you're going to show up uh, before any sort of judge on one of these cases. So, I mean, all of that makes sense if you're going to go it alone. Um, but there are ways for industry to sort of fight back collectively, right? I'd like to spend a little time talking about that because, you know, there's, um, I would say for fintech especially, there's there's already a great sort of community of entrepreneurs. So how does the collective sort of unite and fight? Absolutely. So traditionally, um, one of the ways for the collective to unite and fight would be uh, like community interest groups or joint defense groups. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say a patent troll files 10 different litigation cases and there's 20 different um, you know, defendants. Those 20 could pool together and kind of share resources instead of having each attorney having to do all the investigation alone, you know, they can work. And that's traditional. That's been around for many years. Um, other ways before there's even potentially even been a litigation is there's some, been some interesting approaches. Um, one is this approach. Uh, there's an entity called Unified Patents, which has started Basically, it creates kind of industry sectors and it will get people to buy a membership and it will take that money and pool it as kind of a war chest and then attack patents at the patent office uh, that have been threatening that industry. So that, that's one approach. Uh, another interesting approach is uh, there's a variety of entities. One is, for example, RPX where they will get industry members to pool together money and they will go out and buy these patents. The thought being that if there's a patent available for sale, we, the industry, should buy it, get a license to it and kind of put it aside, as opposed to worrying about some investor or some NP getting it and asserting you it. You flip the script, right? So the whole, the whole idea is to like utilize the trolls' business models against them. Absolutely. So those are two models. The third model is an interesting approach that, that I've been uh, you know, kind of studying with interest is an uh, entity called Lot Network. It came up with this concept that, okay, in general, people have less of a problem if it's one industry competitor, again, using their patents as a shield against another industry competitor that is you know, copying or stealing their ideas. The thing that gets people angry is when it's an investor who is just trying to monetize with no underlying society benefit of or producing business, a product a making. Correct. So the approach then is start at the beginning, meaning 
either an operating entity or an inventor has, you know, is trying to start their business, get them to come to agreement that if the patent is sold at some later time to an NPE, that anyone in this group would have a license to it. So if you got a significant amount of people, for example, in the financial services industry together, and they said, hey, we're developing these patents, we're free to use them against each other as competitors to help our market share, et cetera, et cetera. But if one of us decides to later on monetize by selling it to an investor, or we change our business model and we divest all of our operating assets, we will then have a license to the group. And that's getting a little bit of attraction. Um, the counterside to that is, you know, potentially you're devaluing one of your assets um, as an entrepreneur. But it's an interesting, it's another industry approach, as you would say, of the industry trying to kind of band together. Uh, it sort of reminds me, it's almost sort of like a captive patent specific self-insurance program. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good way of looking at it. Yes. Well, it sounds like uh, we've got some watching and waiting to do to see how these payments cases really start to materialize um, and whether any of our, our friends can, you know, get some of these cases out of the Western District of Texas. But, you know, uh, we'll be sort of monitoring the dockets and, you know, providing some updates uh, on some on some interesting things. But I, I would say that uh, once financial, once, you know, a entity like Casellas LLC uh, sort of found some pockets, I would not be surprised if, you know, future suits on more than these five patents, you know, uh, start to materialize either through the name of this LLC of, or, or another, <laughs> or another that might be formed with some new investment funds. Absolutely. And as people have more of an understanding of what financial services companies do, meaning, again, it's not the traditional paper getting moved around. It's encryption, it's security, it's big data. Um, you know, instead of just going after, for example, the telephone providers on patents that relate to networking, things like that, unfortunately, it is likely they will be coming after the financial services after they realize that it's a whole other set of deep pockets that's utilizing similar technology. Well, all right. So lots to keep an eye on. Mike, I really appreciate your time. Um, and for anyone listening, um, if your company has been sort of in, in the midst of any of this nonsense or you have insight to share, definitely get in touch with the show. We can give you updates and I can put you in touch with Mike if you're interested in talking with him. Uh, thank you again. And keep us posted on what's happening with our, with our troll friends. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dara, for having me on.